Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. After a January 6th committee hearing like the explosive one that occurred yesterday, how can we not talk about it? And we do have some Ohio angles, but even if we didn't, how can we not talk about it on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Lisa Garvin, and Courtney Astolfi, all veteran journalists who have never seen anything like we saw yesterday. I mean, Lisa, you know, you, you've lived through Watergate as I have. This tops it all. And, and of course, you know, we, we're much more media aware and media savvy, but wow. I mean, as you said before the podcast, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson was extremely poised for a 25-year-old woman and told a lot of firsthand stories. I mean, it was, just, it was you could hear a pin drop in that room. I, I couldn't believe it. I had just written a column over the weekend about how we don't put stories on our front page to make political statements. We do it based on the news because people were asking, why isn't the January 6th committee hearing out there? Well, y- you know, yesterday it was the news. I mean, we've never seen anything like this in a U.S. president. And already, you know, you see the the conservative tropes that it was hearsay. It was hearsay. It's not hearsay. It was hearsay is is repeating what somebody else told you and only a very limited part of what she said was that almost all of it was what she saw with her own eyes what she heard with her own ears and you know we had a president that was exhorting a mob he knew had weapons to march to the capitol to disrupt the american process and he wanted to go with them it's just staggering so let's get to it A couple of Ohioans figured into Tuesday's explosive January 6th committee hearings in which, as we said, we learned that then-President Donald Trump exhorted a mob to march on the Capitol while knowing it was armed and then physically attacked his staff when he declined to take him there. What did we learn, Laura, about Congressman Jim Jordan and wannabe Congressman Max Miller? So Jim Jordan called White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows while aides were discussing champ the chants from Trump supporters calling for Vice President Mike Pence to be hanged. And obviously this was all part of this jaw-dropping testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, who's a former aide of Meadows. She said Jordan called Meadows around 2.15 p.m. on the day of the riot. They had a brief conversation. And in the crossfire, I heard briefly what they were talking about. And that was the same time she was hearing conversations in the Oval Dining Room at that point talking about hang Mike Pence. And then Max Miller surfaced a little bit earlier in the testimony. He was a former White House aide, and he told everyone, well, yeah, he had video testimony that said uh, he brought it up, Trump brought it up, he said, I want to go to the Capitol, knowing what was going on at the Capitol, that they were rioting with with, uh, weapons. Well, and and the people in the White House, especially the, the council, we're aghast. Like, you can't go down there. Right. If you go down there, we will be committing no end of crimes. That right. Will... They said we charged with everything. Right. Because you are trying to stop the peaceful transfer of power. You're trying to stop Congress from doing its duty. And according to this was the one piece of hearsay 
conversation that she heard afterwards, people who were there described him lunging for the steering wheel to take control of it. I did see some reporting this morning that the Secret Service uh, will be willing to testify that there was no lunging, but he did very much want to be taken there. We'll have to see what but happens there. What she's painting a picture of is a despot throwing a tantrum, throwing his plate against the wall with ketchup smeared all over from his lunch because he wanted to be part of this uh, uprising, right? Like it feels like he thought he'd be like Napoleon riding at the front of the warriors to like take down the Capitol. I mean, it's so bizarre and alarming. And she spoke so just very matter of fact, but and dispassionately, but very precise that you were just seeing this happen as she well, describes it. Well, the plate thing was when he saw Bill Barr basically debunk that the election was stolen. So he smashed his lunch against the wall and the, the steward that had to clean it up waved Cassidy in to see it. But she said it's not the first time he's attacked the White House China, <laughs> that this was apparently something he did often in his fits of temper. The conversation about Hang Mike Pence, it was an interesting thing because she went mm -hmm. down there because Jim Jordan had called and wanted to talk to her boss, Mark Meadows. So right. she's standing in the doorway while Meadows talks to Jordan and she mm -hmm. overhears in the background Trump basically saying he'd be all right with an attack on Mike Pence because Mike Pence won't do his illegal bidding. I, I we've it, this is like one of those novels from the '60s where where you know crazy novelists portray things upside down with a coup going on in the United States, a coup staged by the president of the United States, the guy who was elected. I don't know how anybody who's paid any attention to this can still support him as he seeks to take the White House again. And he should be in jail. This is, this is crime. When you exhort armed people to go to the Capitol to stop Congress from doing its job, you have committed crimes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, what she testified was that he thinks the president deserve, or vice president deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong, which is just mind-boggling, right? And even these people who had worked with Trump for years, knew his temper, had been planning with him how to try to call the election rigged, were still aghast at what they saw happening on January 6th. And obviously, Jim Jordan's been subpoenaed by this test, uh, by this committee. He hasn't answered that subpoena he well he's answered it with a letter saying he's not going well, to be to testify well, so we we don't know the full conversation you have to know you have to guess what he's going to be called in for next but the the ridiculous thing about jim jordan and there are many things that are ridiculous about jim mm -hmm. jordan is every time there's there's a, a bombshell dropped in these hearings and there have been a bunch he says no one's paying attention this is bogus gas prices are high and that's just not working. You know, I mean, this we're talking about the destruction of the government of the United States of America by the sitting elected president. That, that's what this is about. And he keeps saying gas prices, gas prices. Or, or saying that was your star witness with like a, a laughing emoji. And you're like, like, how, what alternative world are you living in? Are you just I mean, I guess it's the Fox News world. right? Did, did you see right? Tucker Carlson strikes again. Did you see the moment where. Um, Liz Cheney asked her what her thought was, and she said, well, you know, as somebody working in the White House, uh, it, it was disappointing because of all the work that had been done was was being destroyed. But as an American, yes, it was disgusting. 
I mean, it was yes. like, whoa. It was such an explosive quote. And you just, it was one of those ones that your, your ears perk up to. And you're like, as a reporter, that's the one you write down, right? That is the money quote of the day. And there were many. But to just say it was un-American. And Unpatriotic. I, right. She, she spoke so um, just disarmingly, right? And the photo we used on the front page of The Plain Dealer today, I mean, it looks like a movie set. You could not have set it up any better with these big eyes looking up at the committee. You know, her name is out front. And uh, yeah, I mean, no one had heard of her before yesterday. And now I'm sure like everyone well, is talking about her. And the pathetic thing is that the Trump supporters, the the take no prisoners approach, they're they're eviscerating her. They're They're saying all sorts of horrible things about her. Here's somebody that did her duty. She appeared in the highest presser situation. She told the committee what she knew under oath. None of these other people are under oath. Jim Jordan refuses to be put under oath because he's a coward about this stuff. She's under oath. She's up there telling people what she know. We sh- there, there shouldn't be an attack. There, it shouldn't be this all of this stuff about how she's a nobody and she's just looking to get on CNN. Well, it's really and Liz bad. And Liz Cheney talked about that right at the end. She's, she talked about how, or, or the committee chair, sorry. They talked about how how brave she was to come forward and do her duty as an American and then talked about, I mean, hinting about witness tampering, that people are getting these calls, pressuring them, saying, yeah. you know, you got to play for the right team. So <laughs> I, I can't imagine the immense pressure she's under and what that feels like. Well, like I said, she's doing her duty as an American. Jim Jordan, an elected congressman, is not. That's no, the, right. the comparison. And I got to say it, so much of Donald Trump's management style is taken from the Godfather. <laughs> you know, it's just, hey, 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 he's watching you. You know, we know you're going to do the right thing. I, I saw an, an analyst at the end saying, you know, I was in Philadelphia and they never come out and say, if you do this, we're going to burn your, your building down. They come over and say, hey, you got a nice restaurant here. Be a shame mm. if anything happened to it. I mean, that's the, that's the level of intimidation that Liz Cheney hinted at by putting those two quotes up. Lots to come. I It's just because this keeps escalating, I, I just can't imagine not watching every minute of the future hearings come July. You are listening to Today in Ohio. It's been years since ECOT, the electronic classroom of tomorrow, got shut down big time for scamming Ohioans out of a lot of money. Lisa, this all happened before you moved back to Ohio. It's got long trails. How much does ECOT still owe us? A lot of money, and I actually got here right before ECOT shut down, so I had to learn all this kind of backhanded. But uh, State Auditor Keith Faber released an audit on Tuesday that says that ECOT still owes the state $117 million. 106 of that was owed to the Ohio Department of Education, another $10.7 million to the Attorney General's office. Of course, we know that they found that ECOT grossly inflated its enrollment numbers to get more money from the state, and they shouldn't have received that money from the state between 2016 and 2018. Back in 2016, the Department of Education tried to claw back about $80 million. In 2018, ECOT closed, and then an audit by Attorney General Dave Yost alleged fraud by ECOT to get more money from the state. And last October, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that founder William Lager and ECOT must repay the 60 plus million till still owed. So they, they owe a lot of money. Um, I have to say that 
right after ECOT closed, I was still, I was a young, you know, a new member of the editorial board and somebody on the Plain Dealer, there was an auction of ECOT assets and somebody in the Plain Dealer newsroom bought a box of ECOT pens. And yeah, Seth Richards. Oh, Seth. Seth. And yeah. so, yes. you know, I said, Seth, I've got to have one of those pens. So I have an ECOT pen. From <laughs> yeah, Seth Richardson, the political writer, um, he... He, he's got a good sense of humor. He went and bought the pens. The, the thing, the, the sad thing about this was we knew early on. I mean, reporting on ECOT early on showed it was a scam, that, that they were not doing what they're supposed to do. But because of all of the polarization in Columbus about charter schools and right versus left, they had defenders because the defenders didn't want it to be seen as as charter schools were bad. And it wasn't saying charter schools are bad. It was saying this charter school is bad. But because of that ridiculous political fight, this thing went on for a long time. And that's how they got all their many millions of dollars. It it really took a bit of a Herculean effort to shut this thing down and stop the hemorrhaging. And it'll be interesting to see if we ever get the money back. And that $117 million would have meant a lot to uh, public education in the state of Ohio. Just saying. Yeah, I know. Th- this was bad for so long. And, and yet, you know, the, the, the people in power would not act on it because, well, remember, too, they, they paid a lot of political contributions. And we know in Ohio, that's how you keep legislators in your pocket. It's today in Ohio. So people have a chance to actually say what should happen on a prime piece of lakefront land in Cleveland's Collinwood neighborhood. What's there now, Courtney, and what is the public's role in deciding the future of the site? Yes, so public input is going to be ongoing over the coming weeks and months, and there was a meeting last night to kind of start that process. For this, for this, you know, what are we going to do with this mobile home park community that sits smack dab in the middle of the Metro Park's east side beachfront property that's comprised of Euclid Beach Park, Wildwood Marina and Park and Villa Angela Beach. Now the parks are all kind of connected right along the lake, but there's a long-standing, long-time mobile home community that's kind of wedged in between these properties, and it it goes almost up to the waterfront. and And this big planning process that's going to be ongoing, where people are going to be weighing in, is what what, what should be the future of this prime lakefront piece of property? Should the mobile home community stay there? Should we find a way to maybe integrate it into the metro parks? It's a big discussion, and, you know, it could have big impacts on this this 28-acre park where there's there's a lot of residents. So this mobile home park went in after the amusement park that everybody has such fond memories of shut down, the one we talked about, the Arch, a few weeks back, right? Yeah. That's It's been there for, for decades and decades. And it's not what you think of when you think of a, a decrepit mobile home park. It's actually very well-tended and and people who live there take care of their their properties right yeah you can tell that there's love and care you know sometimes it's generational you know people's parents had a a property there you can tell people put love in into their their homes at that location and 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 it does offer folks some some lakefront access to live right on the water who are in mobile homes, so that's a positive there. And the Conservancy bought it because there was a fear that some developer would get it and turn it into some horrendous 
horrendous profit-making thing. So the Conservancy, which is about protecting land and making sure it's used well, stepped in with no immediate plans to, to take it out. Lisa, you walk past there a lot and you you see it. Is is this tract of land a, a prime property to develop for people to get to the lakefront? Uh, well, it absolutely is. You know, the, the walking trail that, that connects all those three separate areas in the Euclid Creek Reservation runs right in front of this property. There's a fence, of course, between the property and, and the park. But to me, when I read this story, I, the, my first thought was land grab. These people have lived there for a long time. The park is well kept. It's, you know, it allows people of lower incomes or, or limited means to live right on the lakefront. What's wrong with that? I, there's, the Euclid Creek Reservation is a big park. I think this is what, 20 acres or 28 acres? I, I just don't see why they would, I feel like they should live, leave it alone. The Conservancy has a, a, you know, that their thing is to return it back to nature or keep it, you know, from development. But I would just hate to see that neighborhood kicked out. Well, at least their purchase of it stops it from becoming some monstrosity. What, whether they slowly close this down, you know, they have said if, if ultimately they close this down that they will provide all the assistance necessary to help people land elsewhere, but they won't be on a lake. You're right. This is pretty much the only place you can live on modest means on the lakefront. Otherwise, you've got to spend big bucks for big houses so interesting story it'd be interesting to see what people think i have a feeling that the input's going to be get rid of the mobile home park and put in stuff for the public to enjoy i mean who who how many people are going to say let's leave the, the mobile home park alone uh but it's an interesting debate we'll have to check in on what what the recommendations are right courtney absolutely we'll see how this plays out we're expecting the results of this process in december you're listening to today in ohio did University Hospitals just come up with the best evidence yet for vaccinating toddlers against the coronavirus? What does a new study show, Laura? Well, it's that it's not equal to the flu. COVID is not the flu, and it's a lot more dangerous, even for kids. So uh, this is a study done by Stephen L. Shine, doctor, chief of pediatric critical care at UH Rainbow. He's also associate professor of pediatrics at Case Western Reserve School of Medicine. And he's inspired to do the research after hearing friends pass on this unproven opinion that COVID equaled flu. So among 66 pediatric intensive care units across the country, the number of patients admitted each quarter with a primary diagnosis of COVID or this multi-system inflammatory syndrome during the 15 months of the pandemic was twice as high as flu before the pandemic. And they used before the pandemic for the flu because people weren't really getting the flu during COVID. So, so you're a parent. What's the upshot for you? I definitely got my kids vaccinated as soon as possible. I haven't gotten them the booster yet. I, I think I will do that before they go back to school in August. But yeah, like this is dangerous. It's not just something they'll get over. Although obviously kids can die from the flu too. I want to stress that. But death was rare in the study. But 30% more kids required medical mechanical ventilation with COVID than with flu. So not just being admitted to the hospital, but what they had to do once you were in the hospital. Um, and this all comes from something called the Virtual Pediatric Intensive Care Unit Network, which is about 100 IC, pediatric ICUs across the United States. So it's, I'm glad they can share their information. So a lot of people believe during the pandemic that there really was no threat to kids. Th mm -hmm. This 
this is an eye-opener because they're saying, actually, there was a threat to kids. It's much worse than the flu. Remember, all the people didn't want to wear masks. It's like, this is just the flu. More people die of the flu. But in this right. case, for kids, this was much more serious than the flu. It is. And I, I mean, I think we're looking, we're comparing two diseases for kids, right? So, yes, kids did not, most kids did not get as sick as adults would have. But for the, and you never know which kid is going to get sick, right? That's one of the very scary things about COVID is you don't know if it's your kid that's going to be really hit by this, this virus. So, and if it does hit, it's going to be worse than, you know, a day of lying on the couch watching TV. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Park Synagogue is expanding its campus in Pepper Pike, where it relocated in 2007. But what is the plan for its old main building in Cleveland Heights, a mid-century masterpiece that a lot of people want to see survive? Lisa, several Jewish congregations that had been in the inner ring eventually moved out to the outer ring with their congregations, leaving some pretty spectacular buildings behind this one's a focus of attention now yeah it's uh, it's called the eric mendelson or the mendelson building named after the architect who created it he created a few other synagogues across the u.s back in in the mid of last century um it's it was built in 1950 it's at 3300 mayfield although you can't see it from mayfield it's kind of set off the street but uh this month, the state gave $1 million from its capital budget for electric and mechanical repairs and upgrades to the Mendelssohn Building, uh, and $1.8 million grant from the Department of De- Development will help them remove asbestos and lead from the property, and that's part of a program for Ohio Brownfield Remediation. That's where that money's coming from. The congregation did move to Pepper Pike back in 2007. They did list the old synagogue, the Mendelssohn Synagogue, for sale last year, but then they ended up partnering with a Cleveland real estate development company, Sustainable Community Associates, to explore options to preserve or reuse this building and possible new development on, that's where the 28 acres was, the 28 acres um, uh, that surround that synagogue. So they're talking about senior and intergenerational housing for downsizing Cleveland Heights residents who want to stay in the neighborhood near their synagogue or near their their neighborhood. They also talked about using the synagogue as a cultural arts facility. There's precedent for that uh, down in University Circle. And they're also applying for national historic landmark status. And they say, you know, thoughtful redevelopment of this land would be great for the residents, but also would boost the tax base in Cleveland Heights. Yeah, and, and look, preserving architecture that is prized is is always a wonderful thing. We've preserved some architecture not so much prized, the brutalist building in downtown Cleveland, but but th- it's good to see that there's some money available uh, to preserve this because if you tore it down, you lose it forever, and then what do you do there? It's uh, it's a good conversation. Check out Steve Litt's story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How does Cleveland City Council propose to spend a block of its American Rescue Plan money? And how is their process different from the very shady one we've talked about that's being used over at the Cuyahoga County Council? Courtney, we were talking about this after the podcast the other day, and I thought, you know, we ought to talk about this on the podcast. Yeah, it's really interesting to compare and contrast what our two largest local governments are doing here with their historic levels of federal ARPA aid, right? So we've talked um, endlessly about county councils, you know, slush funds where they're going to 
divide the money up equally and invest money in community projects specific to each council district. The city council's doing something quite different. President uh, Blaine Griffin this week unveiled a, a list of spending priorities he put together through different conversations with, with all the council members, hearing what, what, what their priorities and recommendations were. And he also kind of used several other factors to guide how he was going to pick this list of projects. Basically, this list of projects is about, it's going to end up being about $53 million worth. Griffin's plan includes the bulk of that, about $35 million, going to home repairs and other housing assistance, such as rental assistance. But then there's also some money worked in there for crime prevention, arts and culture, infant mortality, workforce development. So it's interesting, Griffin kind of laid out on Monday how he arrived at this list. He wanted to invest money that would like bolster existing city services and infrastructure, not start up, you know, completely new new kinds of focus areas for the city. He wanted to give money to partners and, and nonprofits that the city already works with and have shown to be good partners with previous program contracts and things. And and so so what we're gonna see now from council is you know, President Griffin says his intention is to go, you know, he got what he saw as support from his fellow members on Monday to go begin negotiations with Mayor Bibb to see which pieces and parts of this $53 million plan they can come to an agreement upon. And then they could introduce it to council for consideration and potentially pass maybe some or all of this maybe um, at council's next meeting in two weeks. But think about the ways this is right. The council president works on a plan, shares it with his members publicly, gets some sort of consensus from them publicly, take, takes it now to the mayor to talk it out, and then if it, it does become real, it'll go through a council process. Look at the county council. They secretly decide to give, each, give themselves $6 million each to spend without any public discussion, any public vote and then create this this helter-skelter system of figuring out how to spend it, even though in the county case, the charter specifically says individual council members shouldn't do it. Wouldn't it have been nice if what happened in the county council was that they publicly came to a consensus that council members can propose ideas for that money that would be viewed as a consensus? Not that they get to spend $6 million each on whatever they want, but but just to bubble up projects that might be good for the money. That would be legal. That would be appropriate. We really have a civics lesson going on right here. Cleveland City Council is doing it exactly right. Cuyahoga County Council is doing it exactly wrong. But look at the projects that yeah. the city is considering, too. I mean, they're much more laudable than a golf course. I mean, they're talking about, <laughs> you know, building demolition and all kinds of things that are good for the community as a whole. Yeah, I know. I, I said this the other day. I, the county council is, is stupid because w w once they create the slush funds and they're under criticism, your first project out of the shoot should not be a golf course clubhouse. It just brings a spotlight. You know, if they had come out and said, we're going to fund, you know, providing foster more foster care with the money or something, it would be hard for people to criticize it so readily. But the golf course clubhouse, it just shows a complete lack of optics there. They don't understand what people are saying. Courtney, you were going to say something. 
Yeah, I just want to kind of point out one other difference here that I thought was interesting. I didn't get into this super deep in my story, but part of the conversation on Monday among city council was potential plans for for a next batch of ARPA aid. And in that, you could tell some council members were advocating for funds funding specific to projects in their ward. So that's kind of akin to what we're seeing in the county council districts, right? However, you know, you know, there some council members were saying we want any ward specific money to be to be split up, you know, it sounded like equally throughout the city and and council president Blaine Griffin came back and said no, that's not going to be my philosophy here. We need to look at equity, not just dividing the pie by 17 wards and giving everybody a chunk. Griffin said that their kind of guiding principle as they look to maybe use future money in that way is going to be equitable. So does does every councilman's area get the same amount of money? It seemed to be, Griffin was saying, not necessarily. And, and that is what we saw at the county at the county end, there was no regard for which communities were struggling more or which communities had more populations disproportionately impacted by COVID. It was, it was this group of suburbs gets this much money of this slice of Cleveland as, as this group of suburbs on the west side. And it seems like city council's approach is going to be looking at this more equitably to well, two things. geography. Two things on that. The city charter does not specifically say money should not be directed by individual council members. The county charter, the authors have told us, they wrote that in to stop them from doing this. The other thing is, Cleveland used to divide money up by wards for like road paving and things, and they've gone away from that. They've set up a priority list citywide. So now we have much better sense of paved roads in Cleveland because it wasn't just divided up among the council members and spent in areas you might not need it. It's been spent on the roads that need it. And if you drive around Cleveland today compared to 20 years ago, it's a much better system. There are far fewer roads that feel like you're driving on Mars. Cleveland is just being smart about it. And I credit Blaine Griffin for pushing back, saying, hey, let's do this based on need, not some division, artificial division of the cash. The county council should be paying attention to it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I have no idea how much time we've been on because we've had some technical difficulties. I'm presuming we've gone more than a half hour. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast.